Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Continuing economic stagnation from around the world has been rewriting the textbook of economic life, from university students graduating with hopes of economic security to baby boomers holding on to jobs longer than ever before. The world today is vastly different than the world our grandparents grew up in. Today we are joined by Nicole Foss and Lawrence Bomert, who are talking about ways to adapt to the currently failing global economic paradigm. On Extra Environmentalist episode number 70, we catch up with Nicole Foss for the first time since we spoke with her back in early 2012. And we also speak with Lawrence Bomert as they were here in Vancouver, British Columbia on their cross North America speaking tour, helping communities prepare for the hard times ahead. We put some of your questions forward to Nicole and Lawrence. We talk about the role of youth in this ongoing economic crisis, and we talk about the importance of alternative trading relationships. Then at the end of the show, we put some of your questions forward to John Michael Greer in his long-awaited return to The Extra Environmentalist. Then we close out with listener voicemails and more. We are Justin and Seth, and you're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, episode number 70. Everywhere we've gone north, it gets greener. There's more trees, beautiful trees. I'm, I'm just blown away with the forestation here. But the people seem to be just exploding with all the right stuff. The whole new culture, the collaborative culture, the new currencies, the green thinking, the new economics, the sharing. It's really exciting. And, and it's coming up everywhere. Everywhere you go, people are doing so much. It's everywhere. And it's an exciting time. And we've driven up all the way from Los Angeles, so we've done the, all the West Coast so far. But it's been fascinating. We've connected with so many people all the way along at every stage. We're meeting people who are doing new and exciting and different things and who are very engaged with the idea that we have to create a different kind of world. It's, it's been superb. It may be a bit like what San Francisco was to the 60s. Maybe the Northwest here is going to be to the future culture for the world. Yeah, and you never know. There's a lot of people working on creating aspects of that new culture here, and that's why it's an exciting place to be. 
one of the challenges in addressing these issues comes between the tension between the kind of direness of the situation, the kind of panic that some people may feel, and also the feeling of calm that's needed to be imparted to other people so that they can deal with these issues in a meaningful way. How do both of you navigate that tension between the dire circumstances and the positive, active community issues that everybody can start taking on? I do big picture stuff. So it's really looking at the scope of the problem and then leading into some of the things, the mindset changes we have to make and the kind of directions that we're going to have to go in. So it's about looking at limits to growth, looking at the consequences to limits to growth and saying, well, this is the situation that we're actually facing. Now, what are we going to do about it? So I introduce what we're going to do about it. And then Lawrence takes it a lot further and really gets into a great deal of detail on community initiatives with substantial focus on alternative currencies and alternative trading relationships. So it gives people an enormous amount to chew on that's very practical, hands-on, down-to-earth solutions. And we just find that that works together very well as a double act. Yeah, I enjoy the tension and see it as a great opportunity And it's great with doing it with Nicole because Nicole gives a good electrical current into people's system and wakes them up. It becomes all compelling why we have to change. It's not optional. We have to change. We're going to face harder times. And people won't change if we're comfortable. And we've just come through a massive era of increasing comfort and materialism that's now seems to have peaked and on the downside and going to lurch dramatically in all directions. And so it's a massive time for opportunity, either for resilience and survival or to create a a healthier, happier, better, more connected world. The solutions seem to be the same. The crisis is healthy. Someone once said, whatever happens, don't let the crisis not happen. So we're in luck because we're, we're crisis rich. One of the questions we received from one of our listeners, Nathan, in Ontario Uh, He listened to our last interview with you, Nicole. He wants to have a sustainable farm that contributes to his community. But he wonders, how do you take on the huge amount of debt and the, the loans that you need to put up something like solar panels or to buy land? How do you limit your exposure to debt and also to buy the resources that you need to start something like a sustainable farm? It may not be possible for everyone necessarily to own a farm and kit it out with renewable energy because that is very capital intensive. And if you do all that on the basis of debt, but then you can't service that debt, someone's only going to come along and take it away from you at some point anyway. So all the effort that you put into that, the benefits may go to someone else. So owning something like that through debt is not a good idea at this point. However, people can pool resources. So you may be able to get a group of people together, none of whom individually would be able to purchase any kind of farm property, but perhaps together they can. Or maybe a combination of enough people to put in a large down payment with also several people's worth of income streams and earning power, so that if there is any debt, it's well within people's capacity to service it so that they're living on less than they have so that there's considerable margin for error. The other way is to work on property that is owned by someone else. And it may well be possible to get title, not ownership title, but the ability to use a piece of land that's owned by someone else, develop all the skills that you would need. And then if you have managed to preserve capitalist liquidity, then when prices fall far enough, 
you might be able to own a piece of land debt free at a much lower price. But in the meantime, you can have learned all the skills you need in other ways by working on other people's land. It is going to be more challenging with things like solar panels, however. At the moment, solar panels have come down a long way in price, but they've also come down a very long way in quality. So the Chinese subsidy regime has led to an enormous flourishing of the industry there, has uh, led to the production of a whole lot of panels that are a complete false economy, and it's driven out the good quality ones. And of course, the longer you wait, the less access you're going to have to good quality solar panels. So in some ways, it's something that if you want them, you might want to look around for really good quality ones, even if you'd pay more for them today. So that there are quite a lot of complex decisions people are going to have to make, particularly when it comes to the interaction of, of the financial situation and resource shortages and trying to control the essentials of your own existence. For people who are worried about their investment money, because everywhere we go, there's people really worried about where they're holding their money, either in banks or on Wall Street, and how that may fall, is the perfect place for people to relocate their investments and savings into local food-produced industries. And there's a lot of people can be employed in this, as well as building local food self-reliance and the whole healthiness that's going to come with a consciousness to do with food and local food. It's an economic power base. This is how people create an economic power base. And the models can be community-owned corporations. You can use syndicated purchasing the land, cooperative structures for buying land or for setting up businesses in the link. There's CSA models. There's also if you read the work of great fan of Michael Schumann's new book out this year, Local Dollars, Local Sense, he highlights a whole range of different innovative mechanisms that people are using to get involved, especially in the local food industry. And there's also the Slow Money book. People, if they have a concept or a plan, can build that plan and others will want to buy into it. But you don't have to be the business person. So there are a range of new innovative more collaborative business models that allow for investors to come in and you can use things like Kickstarter and other models for finding investment money to go into land-based activities. So if you got the value, if you can grow the food and you can start to build all the, the network of alliances and key people and stakeholders you'll need into that and then the money should only be just a component of that. Of course, I'm a, a great fan of alternative currencies too, another way of raising capital. So we were talking a little bit about thinking of investing differently, and that actually brings up another question that I had here from one of our listeners in Pennsylvania, James, and he was listening to one of our recent podcasts, and his comment was that such a small amount of the American population has the means to get the things needed to live simply, even if they wanted to, and he says he himself is a landless debt peon with little hope of doing more than having a community garden unless he does something drastic. And he says he's avoiding paying debts as long as he can and saving money to buy land. And then he plans to stop paying student loans, declare bankruptcy, try to work part time for the little cash he'd need and try to get out of the system rather than working long hours to pay the rent and debt for years to come. And so he was wondering what practical advice could be given to landless debt peons and the non-industrious poor rather than, say, like upper middle class people who may have resources to manage the crisis differently. I'm not sure you can declare bankruptcy on student debt, so that strategy might be somewhat flawed. I think people occasionally do stop paying student debt, 
but I don't think that the claim against you actually goes away. So as long as one is living in the same country, that may well just come back to haunt him, that decision. There are, of course, other kinds of debt where if it's a mortgage that you're drowning in, well, sell the house and rent something, then you can genuinely build savings because you can cash out your equity. And so you you have no debt and you have uh, cash on hand, which are two very important things. But if it's student debt, you don't have anything to sell to be able to get out of that debt. That's going to be a bigger problem. Most definitely. I think the younger generation is really going to have to come together and work together, live together, share whatever resources they possibly can. And to some extent, hope that the debt collection doesn't uh, come in their direction, because it sometimes is, I think, going to be somewhat difficult to escape from that. But pooling resources in order to increase uh, capacity definitely is going to be something that helps. And there are all these cooperative models that can be built at the local level that allow people to develop uh, capacity. So collapse, uh, a hard economic landing will have its upsides in that we will see a return to real values of many things that we know are meaningful and valuable aren't valued as much in a high inflationary bubble economy and suddenly a lot of things like labour and food and being able to build and make things and work with people in social capacity will be valued again properly and also land will come down significantly in value and warehouse space where people can set up hubs for makerspace projects that play with light engineering, carpentry, industrial sewing, 3D printers if you like, robotics. There'll be a lot of opportunity for that and people are already moving towards that. So we've been mentioning youth and youth navigating the crisis. How have you seen youth in New Zealand, Australia and across the United States, uh, everywhere you've been traveling? It's tough to sort of make any sort of generalizations, but are they on a whole trying to live in the same model as their grandparents and their parents, or are they trying to do something differently? I've seen a whole spectrum of different approaches. And I know quite a lot of young people in the United Kingdom, for instance, who just seem to be trying to have it all with an enormous amount of debt. So uh, there's a huge housing bubble in the United Kingdom, but they're buying houses anyway. And there seems to be this sense that Not only do you need to have ownership of a house, but you also have to have all matching furniture and everything right from the beginning. I mean, that's not the way our parents and grandparents did it. They would have had a coffee table that was an old crate with a cloth over it or something like that for a long time. Certainly uh, my parents did, and they, they lived a lot more simply. So there are quite a lot of young people I have seen in various parts of the world who are trying to have it all and have the appearance of having it all at the moment. Some of them are, are still you know, quite well paid, although unemployment is, is rising among young people. There are young people who are quite well paid. But even if you're well paid, if you are absolutely overstretched, carrying an enormous amount of debt, you're extremely vulnerable to losing a job or taking a pay cut or seeing your asset price fall and they have no margin for error. So people who've taken that strategy, I think that's extremely dangerous. On the flip side, I've seen in a lot of places, young people who are you know, sharing homes and just making things happen who are embracing voluntary simplicity, not as some kind of thing that they're forced into, but they're genuinely coming together to live collaboratively because of the benefits that it offers. There's a wonderful group of young people in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, they're called Doing It Ourselves. 
is run by a friend of mine called Theo Kitchener, who's an absolute dynamo. Uh, she just puts together all these people, just quietly puts together people and inspires people to get out there and do things. And it's an absolutely wonderful group of young people. So th- there are fascinating things that are going on as well, where people really are embracing a completely different viewpoint. And I think it's people who are doing that, who are taking that approach to the future who are going to come out of it and be the leaders of the future and be able to create something fundamentally different. Whereas the ones who are really clinging to the current paradigm are going to find the rug gets pulled out from under their feet and they're going to have very, very little room for maneuver. And it's so profoundly sad. A whole generation have been told, well, you should have this and you should have that. You should go to an expensive college. You should have a house, have a car, all these things. It's all about using them as engines of credit creation to keep the Ponzi scheme going a little bit longer. It's, it's acutely predatory. So we've been devouring our, our young people in order to try and keep this, this system afloat. But then it's eating them alive because they just can't keep up. The treadmill keeps going faster and faster. I want to keep young people out of trouble to say, don't get into that situation in the first place. You do not need all these things that people are telling you you need. And if you're prepared to completely adjust your way of of being in the world for positive reasons, you can be so much freer. And being a debt slave absolutely is slavery. And I don't want to see people taken in that direction. It's a clever system because especially the people who come through university come out with large debt, so they're not going to cause any trouble because they've got their bills to pay. So they're not going to put their hand up and say, no, this isn't right. But having said this, there are different expectations now. And I particularly think the youth of the past 10 years show so much more promise than ever before. I think the 80s and 90s were a little bit lost generations in some ways without being unkind. But most the young people I know, they have a different expectation of things because of the the internet world, the social media. There, there is a whole different expectation, which is hard to imagine if if you weren't born until this era to understand how different it is to what existed before, say, 96. So there is that different expectation by default, which is second nature of, of using a lot of these new tools for collaboration. And then there are a whole wave of activist young people who realise how dramatic things have gone, realise it's, it's up to them. People haven't fixed things. These things have been on the table for 20, 30, 40 years that we were supposed to fix and we haven't. So there's this self-responsibility. If, if I don't do it, it may not get done and you hope enough other people will come along. And then lo and behold, there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are all doing it. So there is a different expectation. I think there's a lot of possibility and promise and if we could just press a reset button on the debts and let those go, that would probably be the one to allow us to get on with it. So you've been traveling around the world and this kind of traveling idea just really resonates with the themes of the show. Could you tell us a little bit, a little bit about your travels and how are people reacting to your speaking tour? Uh, we had Michael Hudson on the show last and he really laid out the big picture about collapse and, and the ideas uh, that you've been talking about a lot. Maybe you could paint a picture about what is happening around the world. I find it very much depends where in the world I am and where the country in question lies in the spectrum of things. Because some places have gone over the edge already. Not that I have lectured in places like Greece and Spain, although I'm very much aware of what's going on there, but 
In places like that, people are so much in the thick of it that they they don't really want to hear a lot in the way of analysis. They wouldn't want me to turn up and say, well, gee, I'm sorry, you lost everything. Let me explain why. But they're just busy getting on with it. So there are local currencies and things all over the place. All kinds of initiatives are springing up in these places because they're necessary. In other parts of Europe where things are not in that state of crisis, they're not already in depression, but they are very concerned. I find there's enough fear in the system that they almost don't want to hear any more of it because it's too real now. So if I was traveling in Europe a couple of years ago, they were more receptive because they were a little bit concerned, concerned enough to want to know more. But it was a bit like watching a horror movie where you can go and have your frisson of excitement and then go home to your comfortable little life. And it's not that real to you. But when it starts to get real, what I found is that people often tend to shut down and they get crisis fatigue. They do not want to hear any more of it because it's just too real and too frightening and they don't want to to have to accept the implications. So I find there's this window of opportunity. If you're far too early, then what you say bears no resemblance to people's lives. They ignore it completely. It doesn't happen by next Thursday. They think you were completely wrong. So if you're too early, it doesn't help. You just end up being called the boy who cried wolf. If you're too late and people are already afraid or it's already happened, you can't get through to people very easily to get them to do something. But there's a useful window of opportunity where people have woken up enough to become concerned but are not yet in a fear-driven mode where you can talk to them rationally and calmly and they will just go out and do all sorts of things. So I find quite a lot of the United States is in that position. Of course, there's been such a train wreck on the economy of Main Street that not everybody has the capacity even at this point to do much. And, and some of them just are so downtrodden that they're quite passive. But there's enough of the population that's in that concerned and want to do something mode and they can see where things need to go and they want to do it, that this is very fertile territory for that sort of thing. And in Canada, people haven't really seen very much happen yet. So here it's more a question of people sleepwalking more so than south of the border. Because south of the border, they've seen that the housing bubble burst. They tend to have a concept of what a bubble looks like. In Canada, we're living in one, but when you're right in it, it's very hard to see it for what it is. So we tend in Canada to tell ourselves, well, we're special, it's different here, we're Canadians and we're nice and bad things don't happen to us. Well, unfortunately, they do. And Canadians have a huge amount of personal debt and they are very vulnerable to rises in interest rates. Our banks are not the safest in the world, nor are we the energy superpower that we tell ourselves. So Canada is still living in this cloud cuckoo land sort of space. And it can be very difficult to communicate the urgency of things in Canada because people haven't seen very much of any of it in their own lives. So in some ways it seems to be too early, except we're not actually that far away from a period where we're going to have a collective wake-up call, I think. So Canada is just simply lagging behind and it's not going to get a very long window of opportunity in that happy space where people are interested in learning and still have the capacity to do something about it. 
In Australia and New Zealand, I find there's tremendous interest. They haven't really gone over the edge yet, but they're in that happy space where they're they're thinking, they're concerned, they're interested, they want to do more, and they are. And they have a sense of limits in both places. In New Zealand, I think because it's an island, and in Australia because they have a really brittle environment that's prone to kick them in the head at a moment's notice. So they have fires and droughts and floods so that they know that things can happen and you're just going to have to deal with it. So when you start to talk to them about other kinds of limits, they get it. They're listening. They want to know more. So I find in places like that, there's tremendous potential to get things going. There's still a bit more time because they're lagging behind the curve in terms of reaching crisis. And there's so much interest that people genuinely want to do things. So I really like spending time in the places where they're really fertile ground for making a difference. It's harder to be in places where people are determined not to listen or where they're not in the headspace yet to really be able to listen and to take it forward. Well, my experience is in New Zealand, and sure, we have lots of people who are in the happy bubble mode. They're a little bit uh, eyes to the periphery, seeing the potential for danger. But we have more than 20% of our people are on the poverty level. So for them, they've already got it. And they're trying to survive in a high inflation economy. And we're a bit of an economic miracle like Ireland was before it fell off the cliff. And in fact, Ireland was held up as what we were supposed to be. We've got an ex-Merrill Lynch investment banker running our country at the moment. So it's not all good. And we pay more for our butter, which is one of our main products we produce, than people overseas pay for it. So that's what you'll get from a economic miracle like that. So a lot of our people have got it already and who I'm looking for the potential I'm working with that is taking a lot of these community programs that are self-initiated and come up at a local level and how to replicate those. And and part of that is the alternative currencies, the let systems, the time banks and other barter systems and get that into some of the big social welfare agencies that are working with people at the coalface and show them that these cool tools are there. Some of them are showing a lot of interest in coming on board and we've had a massive uptake of time banks in New Zealand, yet to see a, a revisit of let systems, but looking forward to taking these tools into agencies that are already widely distributed across New Zealand so we get a, a national uptake and there's a lot of potential for that. But down at the local level, we've got things like people learning community-based activities, you know, seemingly simple, almost dumb things that really are quite powerful, like building local commercial kitchens for people to share and having eating facilities that people come together for community community dinners and things like that, either at a neighbourhood or wider community level. I think eating together is a good place to start. It's real, and then you can link back into your development of your local food industry as well. But a lot of it is appreciating the the value of each person in a community, asset mapping the whole community. People don't always understand just how much they've got in a community. So asset mapping, so you know what you've got, and that involves also bringing forward the individual kind of asset and value and skills they have to share, and, and there's some good platforms for doing that now. For a lot of people and a lot of conferences that I go to, they'll sit around and maybe talk about 
community currencies or different kind of trading systems that they could implement. And then the dialogue goes, well, let's do this and then develop a policy statement that we'll take to our local decision makers. And then they will decide to implement this because it is such a good thing and they'll obviously see the value in it. So a lot of those conferences and a lot of the policy developments that come out of it end up not really going to many places. So I was wondering if both of you could talk about that whole mindset and how to think about something different. Well, it's a great thing if your local government backs a local currency that makes it really powerful and strong. It adds confidence to it as well as what you can use the currency for and local fees and taxes and the like. But it's best if people just start using it themselves. I mean, in New Zealand, we use a thing called barter card, which we just have 4 million people, but we have 7,000 businesses use it as a business-to-business non-dollar trading system. And that's architects, lawyers, accountants, people who accommodation chains and the like are all in bars and taverns are, are members of this network. And it adds a, a great liquidity and trading capacity for all those businesses. So they're doing it themselves. They didn't wait for anyone to do it. In my own region, Golden Bay, New Zealand, We have 5,000 people in our region and 10% of them belong to the local currency. So we use it for all sorts of things. We've had some great initiatives up and down New Zealand that have had the funding cut to them by our kind ex-Merrill Lynch investment banker. And most other communities said, oh, we've got to let our adult education program go because we don't have the money. In our community, we said, well... We do have the money. It's our money, our local money. And we just started using that as a 50% national currency, 50% of our local currency, which is called hands. And we use that to have better than ever adult education programs. We also open that up to our young people. So we have young kids now can be members of our local trading network. So they can get entrepreneurial and learn about the values, the community values of the monetary system. And so it's quite exciting what we can do with it. And some local businesses are able to say that their workers are willing to take one day a week in the local currency, which makes it easier on the the business. And it means that business can trade up to that value each month in local currency. So yeah, it's quite exciting. And then there's other places that are using time banks for community building capacity in Littleton in Christchurch, New Zealand they have people doing things like phoning each week their housebound elderly and having conversations with them and seeing how they are and those people get a credit in the system which they can then use for other things like childcare or gardening or what have you so there you have a community that values people looking after the disadvantaged in their community or the isolated in their community and It's just a a matter of imagination how we choose to value things. So we can value environmental restoration projects. We have the money. We can do it. We're not waiting for someone else's controlled monetary system to give us the power to do it. We are the money. Basically, one of the major aspects that we're facing of crisis over the next few years is going to be an acute liquidity crunch. So when the credit system has an accident, which it's on the verge of doing, we're going to find there's not a whole lot of cash in the system. And one of the main characteristics of an economic depression is there's very little cash circulating in the economy. Then you can't connect producers and consumers or buyers and sellers because there's no money to change hands in the other direction in exchange for goods and services. So you end up with a period where nothing much moves at all. 
In fact, as a literary reference, if you look at Dante's Ninth Circle of Hell, it's a frozen lake. So it's a deeper depth of hell where nothing moves at all than the fire and brimstone levels. So really, that's where an economic depression takes you into a period of just no activity at all, because you have this acute liquidity crunch. Local currencies can provide the liquidity can fill in that gap. So you can have plenty of currency in circulation. You just don't have the currency of the realm, but you have something that everyone is prepared to accept as having value. So it can be absolutely critical to fill in that gap where you haven't got much of the currency of the realm in circulation and otherwise nothing would happen. But you can still connect people with local currency, with time banks as well, where you're exchanging an hour of your time for an hour of other people's time doing all sorts of things. You can keep the connections between people, you know, the social connections, the economic connections. You don't have to see your networks crumble and seize up if you have some other means of providing liquidity. So the the power to produce money as a monopoly is an incredible power over people. It means you can create artificial scarcity. You can hold hostage people's ability to feed and shelter themselves and warm themselves and things like that. So one of the Rothschilds said some many, many years ago, give me control over a nation's money and I care not who makes its laws. It's the ultimate power is control over the money supply. So you can break that power, that power of, of money monopoly through local currencies and get through a period of what would otherwise be a wicked liquidity crunch an awful lot more comfortably than would otherwise be the case. Because it's silly, it's just a human construct, but in an economic crash, we're all still here. The resources we have to work with are all there. The only thing that's not there is a fictional monetary system. So we can let that go. I believe strongly that the future of currency in the world will be multiple currencies. That's the future of money. And they'll be all at different appropriate levels and they'll be very creative, innovative things. You'll, you'll have another 10 Bitcoins coming up in the next decade. You'll have many different systems and it'll be second nature for a 10-year-old with their smartphone to have just the same as they have 20 different applications on the phone. They'll use 20 different currencies they can work with. And that's exciting. And it's a natural extension of a free market after all that you have a free market of money creation and trading systems. If people want to use it, they use it. And at the moment we do. We, You know, you have flybys or coffee card credits. You know, these are all types of credit systems. In our own little folksy one in Golden Bay, everybody who comes on as a member who we approve as a member can go up to 500 in debit. So people get a, a credit of 500 hands when they come on board. So that creates an immediate liquidity. We trust these people because because we value them and trust them. So it's a social contract and that creates liquidity for people to get going. And it's up to us. It's our money. And as we say in Golden Bay, the money, it's in our hands. So what we're looking at with the large-scale financial accident is we're about to crash the operating system, but local currencies and alternative trading arrangements are an excellent way to reboot the system, so to put it onto a different workable footing, because otherwise you have a period where the old system has crashed and there's nothing to take its place. But if you put in place in advance something that will take the place of the larger system when it has its accident, then the transition will, won't be seamless, but it'll be a lot less painful than it otherwise would be. And for all the serious preppers and the like, I would advocate 
explore local currencies because that's better than a whole lot of ammunition it's, and a lot more pleasant and a lot more fun. And we'll go a lot further. I'd, I'd definitely rather die under a, a blue sky trying for these kind of systems and survive in any bunker, that's for sure. <laughs> and it, it sounds to me like what you're really talking about is creating a network of trust that has resources and connections within it. So that way, as the formal official system of network and goods and exchange fails, there is something for people to move on to. Just to jump to the left, yeah. <laughs> it's as easy as that. If that system's too corrupted, leave them with their big piles of paper and what have you and leave them to it. It is an exciting kind of possibility and option that is available to people now and is what will be available to help them get through the more difficult times. of the collapse of the Lehman Brothers Investment Bank. In 2008, the firm filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection following the massive exodus of its clients, drastic losses in its stocks, and a major downgrading of its assets by credit rating agencies. It marked the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history, and its demise became the catalyst of a major global financial meltdown. Housing loans soar by 37% in one year. Mortgage lending is back with a boom, the Evening Standard is saying. The last month's total is the first time 17 billion pounds has been breached since October 2008, when the British financial system's near-death experience condemned the home loan sector to a deep freeze. So now they're celebrating it. The fact that, like the addict, hitting bottom, near-death experience that we saw in 2008 from too much debt consumption, they're like celebrating like, we're back to that same point again. Yeah, the zombies got a big debt. <laughs> transfusion and they're celebrating in, before they have to be shoveled back into their coffins again. Here on London's main shopping drag, Christmas has already begun with all the exhausting spending that entails. But millions of households across Britain will be entering the festive season already saddled with unmanageable debt. A new report says personal debt has hit £1.4 trillion as the rising cost of living forces people to borrow to make ends meet, debt they ultimately won't be able to repay. That £1.4 trillion is an average of £54,000 per household. That's almost double what it was 10 years ago, and almost as much as the country's entire economic output. That figure includes mortgages, secured debt. But the report warns that unsecured debt has also trebled in the last 20 years. Britons owe £55.6 billion on their credit cards alone, treble what it was 15 years ago. All that, says the report, has a harrowing effect on people and their relationships. Robert Alarcon is an unemployed construction worker. No job for three years, but he's busy here attending a daily meeting of a new association, 
for jobless people. They're all short on cash, so they're starting a barter system. This isn't about getting rich, he says. It's about surviving, exchanging things. I can do certain kinds of work. But the pressure is on. Alarcón's jobless benefits are down to about $500 a month, and he's got a wife and three daughters. The church, once a month, gives us a little food, he says, noodles, beans, oil, and rice. The drama for Alarcón's family is playing out in the medieval city of Avila, with an unemployment rate of 27%, as high as Spain's national average. This frenzied hunt for a new wardrobe doesn't damage the bank balance. It's a swap, not shop event. Participants contribute a bag of used clothes and can take away the equivalent. We found some nice clothes here uh, from people that are our age, that have the same taste as we have. It's a crisis period in Greece. The benefit is, of course, that there is no money involved. Greece is an image-conscious country where designer labels are highly prized, but it seems that the stigma surrounding second-hand goods is evaporating. Now our swap not shop parties have become a need. In epochs and in eras of recession, it was always that fashion and high fashion started because of people wanted to feel good. So you don't have to be depressed even if you don't have money. That's our point of view. Of course, there's always going to be money and exchange system, money exchange systems and banks and uh, society and the pol socio-political situations cannot change that easily. But at the same time, it's like a breath of fresh air. Siamek Fatih's family can't afford the expensive private schools where most Greek children learn foreign languages. He's a beneficiary of the Athens Time Bank, whose members swap their skills instead of demanding payment. Everyone's time is given the same value. Wet. In return for the English lesson, Siamek's mother does the teacher's hair. This is especially useful to people who can't afford some services or who have no jobs but they have time. Social exclusion is becoming invisible. When people become invisible, they cannot get their problems solved. Politically invisible, socially invisible. In the time bank, they regain their visibility. Eleni Haratsi deposits credit by caring for the elderly mother of one of the time bank's members. She withdraws credit by receiving relationship counselling from a psychologist. Academics believe this alternative economic model benefits the poor. The significance of this system is that they mobilize uh, people and in a period of very high unemployment. Now these bartering systems are not going to solve Greece's financial problems, but what they are doing is helping the participants to assert a small degree of control over their personal economies. You are listening to episode number 70 of The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Lawrence Bomert and Nicole Foss about downloading responsibility from the system and strategies for adapting to hard times. Many people criticize local currency as being hard to set up or just being silly. What do you say to these folks? Well, sometimes there's a perception that you really can't trade for things of real value with a local currency. I think you can, but you just have to get enough people to have faith in each other. So it rests on foundations of trust, relationships of trust and strong communities. It's not going to work in a community where people are not prepared to engage with each other and don't have that trust. Any currency has to work within the trust horizon. So as we find the economy contracts, 
The trust horizon will contract as well, and trust determines effective organizational scale. So I think the effective organizational scale in a period of economic contraction will be an awful lot smaller. But if you can have that trust horizon still operating within a community, there's no reason you shouldn't have a local currency. I mean, if you had one here, you wouldn't be buying things in Ottawa with it. That's not the point. The point is to support liquidity in the local area based on relationships of trust, real interpersonal trust. And then you can expand it from there when the trust horizon starts to move out again. But in the meantime, if you have the trust to support the system, there's no reason you shouldn't have serious professional services available as well as babysitting and back rubs. Like Bartercard, which is 7,000 professionals all using it for their services and increasing trade by doing so. And that's the thing. There's a whole range of options from your Bitcoin to your Bartercards to your time banks to your uh, lead system. So I've come across one called Grandidos, which is supposed to be based on gratitude, dignity and love. Why not? You know, or some based on credits in a schooling system and an education based or ones based on cheese we found in Bainbridge or a loaf of bread. You know, it's totally flexible and it's going to be a creative exercise. And it turns out that actually people do trust each other, which things like couch surfing brought forward, that millions of people, strangers from all over the world, are totally willing to trust each other. It's a natural attribute of humans, which we've been force-fed a completely different, opposite value system for the past 40, 50 years. That it's a dog-eat-dog, Darwinian-type reality that feeds a hierarchical system and somehow that makes everything work more effectively. But if people are making 10% capital gain on, on their property value each year, the idea of some folksy trading system doesn't seem as compelling. Good times are bad for local currencies in some ways, but keeping those things going when you really need them, they'll become all compelling. People will be banging their way to the door. The other system has worked well. I mean, the universality of, of national currencies has been great. It works, and it's a brilliant invention money. But it's just it's been abused. The, the privilege of the cartels to be the only people to issue the money has been an abused privilege. And we've completely ignored all the real costs of the monetary system, of where it's impacting the environment and Im- impacting social well-being by having to pay the interest component on this falsely created credit. It's a time for a bit of a reorientation. Can you tell people about the uh, software platform that you run the local currency in Golden Bay, the one out of South Africa? The website is ces.org.za for South Africa. And hundreds of different let systems around the world use the same electronic platform for the electronic side of our accounting for our currency. We also have paper vouchers as well. And it's only one system. There's lots of people inventing new systems all the day. It's a little bit old now, perhaps. It was set up about six or seven years ago, but it works really well. And a lot of people... You can just go in and straight away use that system off the shelf. And there's lots of really good, helpful information there. Same as people like Thomas Greco, Bernard Leotard, and others have kept the information coming through. And and we call them complementary currencies because they don't have to be out to replace the mainstream currency, but to be in complement to it. So systems that are more flexible and can reflect the values that people have. Mm-hmm. 
And you were talking earlier, Nicole, about this whole window in between where people can retreat back to their comfortable lives and maybe see the crisis coming, but not have to deal with it in an acute way. And then when they're thrown wholeheartedly into it and they may not have the resources or flexibility to deal with it as they might have had a few years ago. And so one of the interesting things of 2013 has been seeing many of the things that you've been talking about for a long time happening in very severe ways from seizing money in banks in Cyprus to the U.S. once again on the verge of default and having their massive debts being thrown around now as a political weapon. And these things are not going away. These are only going to happen more frequently in the future as the global credit bubble continues to crash and the financial operating system experiences so many problems. And part of the narrative in the United States, as Europe has sunk deeper into depression, people starting to see this more serious phase of economic crisis that's really starting to affect them because people like yourself, Nicole, have been talking about the problems of sovereign debts for many years, and now it's really showing up in a very severe way in government shutdowns and suddenly, you know, people aren't getting their paychecks and and such. And so how are you seeing the psychology and response shifting in the U.S. and what can people expect next? Well, people are getting very much closer. More and more people have been falling off the back of the treadmill that keeps going faster and faster all the time. It hasn't reached a critical mass of people yet, but it's getting closer all the time. Now, the big story in the U.S. is actually, I think, not the government shutdown and the whole debate over the debt ceiling. I think that was just uh, political brinkmanship, political theater, using pressure to try and and force austerity and, and things like that. So that was less of substance than what's going on at the state and municipal level. I've been lecturing a lot about the rubber hitting the road at the state and municipal level in this tour. And that, I think, is what people can anticipate next. Detroit is the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history. It is not going to be the last by any stretch of the imagination because the municipalities and states can't print money and they can't monetize debt. They've been on a trajectory of making more and more promises for a long, long time. It's easy to make promises. Somebody else has to keep them in the future. We're getting to the point where that isn't possible anymore. So what happened in Detroit is a final acknowledgement of not being able to squeeze the residents for higher taxes and cuts in services constantly in order to service these other promises that have been made. So in Detroit, in their bankruptcy, they're looking at a 90% haircut for the pension funds and the loss of retiree health care, a 90% haircut for the municipal bondholders. That's what it looks like when you hit the end of the line. That's a measure of the scale of just how many promises we've made that we won't be able to keep. So that's very much the kind of thing we can expect to see a lot more of. There are many municipalities that are poised to hit that brick wall at 100 miles an hour and go into Chapter 9 municipal bankruptcy. And we're going to see enormous haircuts on on things like pensions and, and bond holding. So if people think that municipal pensions are in any way secure, they're really going to be extremely disappointed. And bondholders as well, they they buy municipal ponds because they think they're safe. There's a tax exemption, tax advantages. So they're looking for something that's, that's a safe, guaranteed return. Unfortunately, there isn't anything that's a guaranteed, safe system. Municipal bonds are going to be wallpaper at some point. 
And what's what's really going to happen is that the defaults in the municipal bond market are going to raise the cost of capital for municipalities, an awfully large percentage of which borrow the gap between their tax revenues, income, and their expenditures all the time. But the higher the rates go on municipal debt, the larger the burden that that represents. And it's going to get harder and harder in the future to spend more than you take in in tax revenues. But at the same time, your ability to to collect tax revenues will be falling because there'll be a lot less economic activity to tax in the first place and property prices will be coming down. So you really get a perfect storm. And I think the focus is going to be at that municipal level. At the state level too, there is no mechanism for state bankruptcy in, in the US, but they're going to have to develop one because there are a whole range of states that are going to be hitting that same wall. I, mean, I lecture about what goes on in uh, Illinois where they're a year late paying their bills and they're not paying pension contributions and trying to encourage gambling in order to tax human frailty, not paying pension contributions, selling pension fund assets to pay current retirees, knowing that that means you won't be able to pay future ones or selling the right to revenue streams and things like that. So I, I look at all these outright desperation measures and I think we're going to see state bankruptcies, we're going to see municipal bankruptcies. And this is where the rubber hits the road because it's pensions that go, it's health care, it's services in the local economy. So this is absolutely the kind of thing that that hits people in a very real sort of way. And and I think we really need to anticipate that there are going to be less services provided and that not all promises are going to be kept. So this is all part of that operating system crash scenario that I was painting earlier. And this is why we need to do the kinds of things that Lawrence is talking about to say, well, that larger system has made us lots of promises. It isn't going to be able to keep them. So we have to, to take matters into our own hands, to not look upwards, because we've, we've uploaded responsibility for so many things to higher levels of government multiple higher levels of government quite often. We need to download responsibility again and say, we are the ones we've been waiting for. It's within our hands, our capacity to make a difference. And the solutions are not going to come from the top down. That's mostly where the problems are going to come from. We need to look for solutions and we need to look at what we can do at the community level. I mean, it really is a question of a bottom-up kind of of revolution, if you like, a revitalization of communities and civic leadership, all these small-scale grassroots initiatives. And as Buckminster Fuller said, you don't fight the system by by fighting the existing reality. You don't try and change things that way. You do something else that renders the current system obsolete. And if the current system is about to fall flat on its face anyway, then all the more reason to render it obsolete by doing things fundamentally differently. I mentioned a story in my talks about a Japanese housewife's collective that banded together in the 60s because they were concerned about the price of milk. So 200 Japanese housewives banded together so they could collectively buy milk. Over the next four decades, the Saikatsu grew to represent over 400,000 people, 250,000 households, and they now buy their own dairy farms, which they run organically. They lobby government against GMOs. They run their own people for council. They have over a billion yen in their bank, which they finance their members and to different activities. They run daycare centres and the like. That's the kind of thing that I think, if, if you count how many people are in environmental 
organizations across North America who are members of them, if they started buying the farms and turning them into the model they want, you can change things really powerfully. People have got to start to use the power they have. And we have a lot. Mm -hmm. And so do you see people really starting to wake up and see this bigger picture for what it is? What's kind of the first steps for them to start doing the things that you're talking about, Lawrence, and to start finding resources that they can put in place in their communities? There'll already be people doing stuff. There'll be organizations and groups. And often these days, they'll be really, really local and easily accessible. So is to connect with them and come in with the sleeves rolled up and say, what can I do to participate? Because it's a two-way thing, reciprocity. Yeah, so that's exciting. You only have to look. That's part of asset mapping. I'd like to see every community have a really good asset mapping system going so that at everybody's fingertips, they know exactly who and what they've got going for themselves in their community so they can get moving to use it. As I said earlier, crisis is good because it it clears people's thinking quite marvellously. So, yeah, go and find out who's doing what in your own community and find out which group an initiative works for you and go get involved. Working with networks is a really good idea. So you don't have to form a network from the bottom up because there are lots of networks that are there already. So it really helps if you can plug into a network in order to leverage your efforts because then you're you're plugging into a group of people, hopefully who are like-minded people, and then you're you're working with a much larger group that has more capacity to, to change things. So things like the Transition Towns Network or increasingly permaculturalists there are lots of things that already exist. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can work with people who've already come together for a purpose very much like the one you're trying to achieve, whatever that may be. And then you can bring those networks together as well, because that's even more powerful. And I'd be looking at what companies you want to work for. I would have a look at what companies are operating locally that you admire the values of those companies. Put your name forward for when a position becomes available that you'd like to work with that company. A lot of folks are thinking about immigration to ride out the crash. Is this the way to go? Well, I think one can overthink these things. Uh, when you ask that question, it reminds me of a story of a fellow who in the 70s, you know, the whole era of duck and cover, he lived in the United Kingdom and he was thinking, oh, where on earth can I go? Where would be safe? Because all these things are, are coming and it's all going to get uh, really, really bad. And where in the world does nothing ever happen? Well, in about 1980, he moved to the Falkland Islands. So, you know, the, the best laid plans of mice and men can come unglued. You know, there are things that happen that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate. I mean, really, you want to be where your face fits and where you know people and where you have connections. Because you might look at a place that's superbly physically endowed with resources and things like that. But if your face is never going to fit there and you're never going to be accepted as part of the community, that is really not a place where you're going to be able to make a go of it. So I think people really need to think in terms of those networks and those community kinds of links. For some people, it's going to be a good idea to, to go somewhere else, but it would still need to be somewhere else where they had those connections. You might want to get away from a, a particularly overstretched situation where you happen to live today, but you would still need to think in terms of going somewhere where you can be part of something. And you don't want to turn up at the 11th hour and expect people to welcome you in if they don't know you from Adam, especially if, if you really don't seem to be 
part of their group. So I think people really do need to to think in terms of the human relationships and the connections they have and the things they can genuinely do in a place rather than to just look at how well or how poorly physically endowed a place might be. And everyone will need to make their own decisions as to what are the risk factors they might find intolerable or what are the benefits that they might find irresistible in particular places. Yeah, location does does count for a lot if, if you're seriously hedging your bets on that one. And as Nicole often talks about, is carrying capacity. So I think most people can work that out. But I think number one thing is attitude. Try and cultivate a plucky attitude. Don't don't take it too seriously. I don't think we can afford to take it too seriously at this point in time. And allow for the fact we might be pleasantly surprised. Maybe this is uh, an evolutionary moment that just needs a bit of excitement to kick it off. And on that point, the psychological resilience is so important because we can't rely on our physical circumstances. What advice do you have to other people or maybe examples for yourselves on how you've been able to develop that psychological resilience? Looking at what's going on in the world and really accepting that things are going to change and that certain things are not going to be available, but those tend to be not the things that make people happy anyway. I think that that's a big step. And really thinking in terms of connections and developing a sense of purpose, that's been very important to me because one can end up being overwhelmed by by this sort of thing. And it can be depressing, but a tremendous sense of purpose and a sense over taking back control of your own life and what you do with it. Those two factors are the best antidote to depression there ever was. So get involved, get out there and genuinely do something. And people who do that will not be wallowing in depression. And that's an enormous step forward. If you can get yourself and others, hopefully, into a constructive mindset, then you have a kind of psychological inoculation, if you like, against being sucked into movements of anger and fear that are only going to be part of the problem. So people who are sort of amorphously or vaguely just afraid tend to do things like give political mandates to extremists who are going to make everything significantly worse. So it's very, very important to to get people into that constructive headspace and to get them thinking about what trajectory they want to be on, taking the steps they need to take in that direction. And if you can then build, learn the lessons of history and build certain supply cushions in advance, then people can retain the luxury of the longer term view. Their discount rates don't shoot through the roof. They don't find that they're running around like headless chickens. And that way you can minimize the human overreaction to events. So you can you can put a floor under how deep contraction has to go before you can start rebuilding. So the psychological aspect of it, I think, is really, really important. Mine didn't come easily. I mean, I, I suffered a lot of years of grief about what we'd done to our beautiful environment and the species. For me, big picture stuff helps, but a Hubble telescope, then looking back at our marvellous little blue dot, as Carl Sagan used to say, but also looking back in history and thinking, you know, where are we in space and time? We've got more tools now than ever before. We've got such fantastic things at our fingertips. we just got to put it into practice. I don't believe that looking back in time that 
that Adam and Eve have come all this way, crawled through three and a half billion years from primordial slime to finally get here to stand on two feet and know a little bit about who and what we are and and to end up choking to death on a Big Mac and fries watching crime story on Tuesday night at home on TV. That's not how I see our story ending. And right now, and a lot of people are going to wake up to that, that our whole human story is on the line. It's not just about the future, because the future, there's a lot of brick walls ahead, but it's our whole past. It's our whole human story. And I think once people start to really wake up to that, there will be a massive energy to come flooding into all these things that people like ourselves and all, all these people that, that you interview who are working on the good stuff and, and been seeding it. And, you know, coaching other people is going to be a big part of it. We're going to have to turn around and help people through that because they're going to be waving their arms around going, oh, it's a, you know, the end of the world. It's the end of the world. Yeah, it's the end of a world that we're sick and tired of. We're ready for the new one. Could you tell us about what you see that you're most excited about and how the new narrative is emerging and how people are starting to tell it to one another? Well, there are all sorts of small initiatives all over the place. I mean, my favorite one is one that uh, I saw in Western Australia where two friends of mine came together and brought their whole street along with them. So they'd installed a a whole lot of, of energy saving things on their own property and they were doing things in a very different sort of way than you normally would in suburbia. And they brought their whole street along with them. So they were able to bring people together by movie nights and pizza nights. And so they have movie night once a month and pizza night once a week where they all get together, share a meal, watch films together. And then they were able to say, this is why we have goats and guinea pigs and rabbits and chickens in our suburban backyard. And this is why we grow fruit trees on the verge in front of our house. And because they brought the whole street along with them, nobody complained about those things. And they actually won an environmental award. And my friend, uh, Tim, stood up and said, well, thank you to the council for not preventing us from doing all the things that were prima facie illegal. <laughs> and and the council had basically said, Look, don't tell us what you're doing, just do it. <laughs> because if you tell us, we'd have to stop you. But they, they actually managed to bring the whole street along with them. And, and they built it up to the point where they, they managed to have a, a yearly sustainability festival with thousands of people coming to see stalls and all sorts of amazing things that they were doing. And this was two people's initiative in one little suburban neighborhood in Western Australia. And if you have just the enthusiasm of even just a couple of people, it can make all the difference in the world. So when we think to ourselves that, well, what can I do? That it it just, whatever I do is going to be inadequate. You know, you can do absolutely wonderful things. You just need to inspire other people to come along and do them with you so that everybody's doing it collectively and then it just catches fire. And and it's that multiplier effect that really excites me. And just seeing it, you know, just seeing like the fertile fields are taking off everywhere you go. It's just how many people are doing so many good initiatives at a local level. And then when you travel around, you say, hey, everyone's doing this. The explosion of permaculture into the world is is really exciting and seed saving banks and sharing and collaborative culture. And and once people realise that little effect that they take part in is, is part of a big effect that gets exciting. In Estonia, which is a beautifully forested country in the main, it turned out that people went and dumped all their rubbish in the forests. As a matter of course, it was just a habit. No one thought about it, except some people started to think about it. And these these two women thought, well, what if we could organise a volunteers' day and do something, just clean up a part of our forest? And they teamed up with other people and they were into social media. They got going. 
And they thought maybe if we got several hundred or even a thousand people on the day, they, they got 50,000 people turned up. The army turned up to do it. And within a few years across the world, there's 8 million people participating in similar local cleanup events around the world who, who have modelled themselves on what happened in Estonia. That's the power. That's the excitement. That's what gets me out of bed. I just want to say about in the 90s, Justin, that we did get the, all the Seattle music and some really good electronic dance music. So I, I just want to retract that. The 80s, well, that's an us. And in closing out our discussion with Lawrence Bomert and Nicole Foss, it brings to mind the kind of phase that we're in in this whole ongoing failure of our global economic paradigm. And for a lot of people, I think that it's a real tension between, as we brought up in the discussion, the urgent nature of what's happening and also looking at everything in the world and to a large extent, you know, it's all still there. Like you can still go to a gasoline station and buy fuel for your car if you have money. There's still, you know, new fancy smartphones that are coming out every few months and people are like rushing to buy them. To some extent, it feels like nothing has changed even though we're five years past the crash of 2008 and a huge load of massive bailouts. And so for a lot of people, I think there is an expectation of really massive change. But then on the other hand, it's like for people who maybe just muddled along and didn't really care about any of the systemic instabilities in in the world, some of them probably have just been able to go along just fine without experiencing any of the edges of the collapse, although there's certainly a lot of people who have. Sometimes, Justin, I feel kind of like I'm in the eye of the hurricane. You know, we had this huge crash that hit our society and everyone was freaking out about their portfolios evaporating and their hedge funds disappearing and their pensions just going to the trash can. And then we have this lull period here while we're pumping out ridiculous amounts of money into these economic bailouts and quantitative easing one through what is like 100 (laughs) now i can't even remember the number infinity actually yeah excuse me infinity and just pumping out this enormous amounts of money into into places we don't even see where the assets are going Uh, and you like you mentioned the technology that we we've come to expect in the past generation is just continuing to boom and continuing to improve And we are looking towards a continually, I guess, technologically 
brighter future. But at the same time, we're seeing our economic system just plowing into the ground. It's kind of a, a weird juxtaposition, and, and it's very disconcerting, especially when you can't find a job, when you're one of those people that is getting out of college and you and you see all this, you, you expect that you're going to have this fantastic job. And just like Nicole Foss was saying, she's been traveling around seeing these people who are trying to live that dream, who are trying to live with that filled up house with furniture that's just way beyond their means, living paycheck to paycheck. And as soon as you lose that job, as soon as that job goes away, they're just, they're just going to hit bottom. There's not going to be any, any kind of safety net there to catch these these young youthful people who are dreaming of that of that life that their parents lived and trying to emulate their the lives that they're told that they could that they see on TV and it's it's not it's not really going to be there because it's as soon as that job goes away they're just done and i think that can look at issues of building alternative currencies and, and perhaps not see the value in it but when you look at the places that are mired in a horrific depression, much like the one that Nicole Foss was mentioning has its parallels in Dante's Ninth Circle of Hell where everything's frozen over, it's a frozen lake and nothing moves at all. It is these methods of, of currency where people have you know pre-established that they have some sort of value and they can use that to exchange and move goods because it, it – happens where the money just gets sucked out of the system a little bit at a time and the amount of transactions that are going on just become less and less. And if you don't start building something parallel to that, everything just freezes up. And I think that a lot of the dialogue in the collapse and peak oil and economic crash scene has really like played up in, in many ways these uh, fantastical types of events when really it's just the ongoing grinding uh, of every day where just more and more transactions bleed out of the system and eventually those just all add up into less and less economic activity that's happening and so it's it's almost a much harder thing to grasp and understand than a fantastical crash you know something that's uh, deserving of a Hollywood movie but it's also much more painful because it's just like the death by a a thousand cuts where they all add up. And it's a little bit of both because there's definitely more, I think, September 2008 kind of crashes uh, in the future that will definitely reorient life and will cause a lot of pain and strife for people. But at the same time, as those happen, I don't think it's going to just crash the system all at once. I think it'll definitely crash parts of the system. But who knows? We'll see. You know, uh, uh, the last few years have seen unprecedented central bank interventions and unprecedented rule changes. It'll be interesting to see if the rule changes can continue to quell the unrest and uh, uprising as the future crashes set in. I don't know if that'll happen. But I think that the examples from uh, these communities that are suffering really terribly and are using community currencies, uh, local currencies to, you know, just get by and get basic needs uh, shows the validity of what they can do for for a town or community. Now, Justin, I know you have been reading a book that kind of was talking about the fact that these types of economic slowdowns and crashes are nothing new. Yeah, well, actually, you know, these things are very much like uh, waves that come in and out. Uh, like if you sit on the beach and watch the waves come in and out, it, it's very much like that with these economic cycles and economic crashes. And 
a, a lot of the historic examples are really interesting to read about. I was reading this book by the economist Irving Fisher called The Money Illusion, and it details all of these examples where people were living in economies where their monetary system was failing and they didn't realize it. And so all of these things that we look in on now and see as crazy back then, they didn't necessarily see as crazy. And I mean, one example was in Germany in 1923, the president of the Reichsbank, so you can think of like Ben Bernanke's equivalent in the United States, went before their legislature and basically said, we'll be able to issue in a few days about 20 quadrillion uh, in, in their currency. Like Did 20, you say quadrillion? Yeah, quadrillion. And everyone was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's good. You know, How many zeros is that? <laughs> It's a lot of zeros, okay? <laughs> it's a lot of zeros. And so Irving Fisher remarks of the optimism at the time. He says, and and this is a, a quote from the book, this heedless optimism reminds one of the definition of an optimist as a man who having fallen out of a 19-story window was heard to mutter just before striking the ground, so far, so good. <laughs> and the, the problem is that when you're in these monetary system crashes, it's very hard to see how bad it is because you're inside the system using the currency. And um, it, because this system is crashing at a global level, you'd really have to see all of the consequences with all of the global currencies as they fail along with uh, the U.S. dollar. That's a great example. Uh, that's a it's a really dark joke, but it's a really funny example of the way our economy is going right now. The, the man falling out of the building, seeing the ground coming, but he's like, you know, I'm doing okay right now. I'm you know. <laughs> My body's still feeling pretty good. I can still talk on my cell phone. I can still watch my TV shows. My car is still getting lots of gas. But yeah, I still yeah. got internet on my cell phone. You know, four G, <laughs> unlimited data, unlimited texting. <laughs> what what more do I need? Definitely. <laughs> and and so um, later in the book, Irving Fisher goes on to write about what was happening uh, to wages at the time. And uh, so he writes that the height of absurdity happened in 1923 when the average weekly wage of a metal worker was 30 trillion marks at, at the time. So it was 850 billion times the same wage that a metal worker would have received in 1913. I bet he was uh, really excited to get that raise when his boss came <laughs> in and told him that he's going to be making a trillion marks a week. He's probably like, yes. He walks into the boss's office and the boss is like, you're getting a raise, $30 trillion. <laughs> $30 trillion marks. Yeah. Uh, not to, we're not going to mention the fact that a, a loaf of bread costs a, about a trillion marks, but, you know, it, it's all good. Yeah, and, and Irving Fisher goes on to say that the cost of living had increased uh, 1.2 trillion times. So even though you're making 850 billion times more than you did before this monetary system crash started, the cost of living had increased 1.2 trillion times. So you're definitely not catching up. These are examples where there was hyperinflation occurring, and that's very different from the situation of uh, large-scale deflation that's happening in our current economy. But the hyperinflation didn't happen all at once. It built up time after time, year after year, until it reached these absurd points. And then the conditions that ensued led to the social uh, angst and strife that created the conditions for the Second World War. In some countries where their currencies had failed so many times, 
Later on in in The Money Illusion, Irving Fisher writes that in Central European countries, it became the habit to make contracts for rentals or any kind of deferred payment in terms of commodities like wheat or rye. And so you would go and make a contract in that commodity rather than the currency itself, plus interest. And so that's just one way that people adapted to this kind of monetary instability. But I definitely recommend The Money Illusion because Irving Fisher, even though you're thinking like, oh, here's an economist from the 1930s writing a book, um, it's actually, it's very well written and easy to understand and has a lot of great examples of all of these different monetary system failures throughout history. I know a lot of people whose who's approach to the decline and fall of the industrial world is say, okay, well, that's fine. I'm going to keep on enjoying it until it falls out from under me, and then I'm going to die. Now, I'm not sure how um, comfortable they're going to be with that choice when part two becomes becomes the next necessary step. But a lot of people are saying it in so many words, and I have no argument with them. You know, it's rational. It may be immoral. It may be corrupt. It may show that, you know, they, they obviously don't care at all about their own descendants or anybody else. But that's fine. It is at least, a ra- you know, it's rational actor theory in, in process. And at least they're willing to take the responsibility of actually, like, up and dying when it comes to that. But if you don't want to do that, then, you, if, you know, if you actually want to have a future, if you want there to be a future for your children and grandchildren or what have you, then you need to seriously look at the lifestyle that has no future and say, I need a different lifestyle. I need to do something else. And then you need to act on that. One of the things that I've noticed consistently in the, in, in the geekosphere, okay, the, the computer geek communities out there, they don't get whole systems. I, I constantly get these people insisting, well, of course we can have an internet through, you know, through the most appalling possible collapse because, I mean, like we can have some computer stuffed in a cave somewhere. Okay, what's going to power them? Where are you going to get the spare parts? Da-da-da-da-da-da. They don't think in terms of whole systems. The internet is not this kind of abstract thing hovering in space. It exists because the federal government and a bunch of really big corporations paid for it. And they basically own it. And so Bitcoin could go away in an hour if a federal judge were to pass, uh, were, to, were to make the necessary ruling, or if an executive order were to come down from the White House. Bitcoin could go away instantly. These are the realities of power. Okay, and as long as you think of the internet as this kind of this kind of vague background plenum, and not an actual nuts and bolts hardware and software manifestation that has to be paid for, has to be maintained, is run, is controlled, is shaped and dominated and directed by many competing forces within the political and economic spheres, you can say a lot, you can get into a lot of very silly debates and and say a lot of things that will not necessarily stand up to the test of reality. Just remember who owns the internet. It's not you. It's the government. One of our listeners, Dom, wrote in from Oregon and had a question on natural capital valuation, things like the Natural Capital Project and the concept of ecosystem services. What are your thoughts on those? It's a halfway step, but it's an important halfway step. It's a halfway step because we're not actually going to be sane about our relationship with the natural world until we realize that we are completely dependent on nature for everything. And that the preservation of natural and, and, and enhancement of natural systems and natural cycles should come before every other value. In the meantime, if you can point out to an economist 
that three quarters of the value in circulation in the American economy is provided free of charge by nature, then it can make an impact. If you can point out to people that, that our economy depends moment by moment on inputs from the natural world that we are messing up because we're too stupid to maintain them, that can have an effect. And so the, the, the attempts to come up with ways to, to provide an economic valuation for nature are useful, if only as a wake-up call. We had a question from Kevin out in California. He says that, uh, that he's very interested in beard grooming, uh, food and liquid workaround tips. He says that beards are back in these days and that clean-shaven chins were probably always a feature of a petroleum-fueled affluence and unsustainably high-tech industry. Uh, any comments on the beard? One of the burdens I've always had to bear is that all of my my hair, beard, head hair, everything is completely unmanageable. Nothing will make it behave. And so I, I just that's why I just end up growing my hair, growing my beard. I tie I, I basically mug my hair with a comb in the morning and tie it up as close as I get to BDSM and um, try to keep my beard from ending up in my beer or my soup or what have you any more than it has to. But literally, you can't groom the thing. I know people who have these beautifully groomed beards, and I'm helplessly jealous, but mine mine always just looks like, you know, somebody uh, took a Brillo pad and applied an electric shock to it. Paul in California had a question about Dmitry Orlov's five stages of collapse and how they fit in or don't fit into the idea of catabolic collapse. Dmitry's stages of collapse, uh, there's, there's a real tendency for people to run together different modes of collapse, different things that collapse into this kind of accelerating drumbeat leaving, ending with everyone dies. And that's part of what I, what I call the Hollywood mentality. Um, the idea that everything basically is structured to fit into either a Hollywood adventure film where we save the world or a Hollywood disaster film where everybody dies. Now, in point of fact, you can have different aspects of these collapses, the, the kind that Dimitri is talking about, in different times, in different places, and out of the order that he gives them. You know, sometimes an economic system will collapse. Sometimes a government will implode while the economy is doing just fine. Um, sometimes the ecosystem can drop out from under you when the politics, the economy, everything else is just going along peachy until all of a sudden you don't get any rain for 200 years. Um, it's less simple than that. Catabolic collapse is not a, is not a way of talking about these particular modes of collapse. It's a way of talking about the observed experience of civilizational breakdown as we see it in the historical record and a model for tracking that. Um, the major difference is that catabolic collapse is self-limiting. Now, where it limits is a different is a complex question. It depends on the nature of the society and the dependence of the society on renewable or non-renewable resources. We are facing a whopper of a catabolic collapse because our society depends so completely on non-renewable resources. Um, other societies that use entirely renewable resources can go through a catabolic collapse. Okay, you know, and they kind of settle down to a sort of medieval level and they pick themselves up and start up again. We're unlikely to do that because we are not we are not as bright. A really big thanks to all of our listeners out there who are able to provide us with the funding necessary to let us ship a microphone out there to the Archdruid and let us capture him in ways that I don't think I've ever heard him be captured. I mean, his voice is so much different than ever I've heard him before. Should we I, just play a little bit of what he sounds like over the telephone here? Yeah, yeah, do that. You know, the, the, one of the things that I've noticed consistently in the, in, in the geekosphere 
Okay, the the computer geek communities out there, they don't get whole systems. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a huge difference there. There's like, there's no there's no base at all. Where did that guy come from? I, th- I didn't even know that was him <laughs> when I first started listening to it. It is mind-blowing. So we have such a huge amount of gratitude to all the listeners who have been supporting the show with their donations in you know US dollars, in euros, in Canadian dollars, and in bitcoins as well. We actually got some donations of bitcoins before the boom of bitcoin. So we're, you know, floating up on that bubble. <laughs> yeah. We're in the the bitcoin world for better or worse. So th- so speaking of the fantastic recording we were able to get with John Michael Greer, we have some amazing listeners to thank as well. We couldn't do this without the listener support and it's really the listeners who make this show what it is. I mean, this is an, an actual on the ground example of what your donations are getting is this amazing audio from uh, JMG. So we have Eric to thank out in Washington. Thank you so very much, Eric. And Eric sent us a donation on the notorious Black Friday saying that there's no better way to abstain from consumerism than staying at home and donating to the extra environmentalist on Black Friday. Eric says that he can't even describe how many times throughout the year he's listened to the podcast and the subject and guest seems to be directly synchronized with the ideas that he's ruminating on but had no prior deep knowledge so our show has been providing him with a continual supply of puzzle pieces that he and he is certain that many others use to assemble into a giant mental picture of how we arrived in this mess and what we must consider if we are to survive as a civilization and a species. So thanks for that donation, Eric, and for your kind note. And also thanks to Patrick in Oregon for yet another donation to the show. So thank you, Patrick, for your continued donation and listening and email support. We greatly appreciate it. So thanks to Eric and Patrick for their donations in U.S. dollars. But also thanks to Danny in the Dish Pits for his Bitcoin donation. And we have links on our website where you can donate Bitcoins. And I think the interesting thing about Bitcoins are that you can send such small portions of them. And so most of the focus on Bitcoins in the media and uh, that's been driving a lot of interest in them recently has been their exchange rate into U.S. dollars. But that's not really the ultimate point of Bitcoin at all. It's an amazing payment service where you can transact money into any currency or send it around the world extremely quickly um, and do it with such a, a frictionless process. It's so different from sending like bank drafts or Western Union money transfers, and you can break it down into little tiny pieces. So if you want to support the show and you have some Bitcoins, but you don't want to give, you know, $15 worth of Bitcoin to the show or $20, you can send literally like 0.00001 Bitcoin to the show. And even that uh, makes a big difference because then we have more Bitcoins. Justin, how would somebody send 0.0001 Bitcoins to the show? <laughs> well, what you can do is uh, what I've started to do as of episode number 69 is on our site, there will be in the episode post an option at the end of the post to donate Bitcoins um, to the extra environmentalist. And so that'll send it to a special address for that episode. So if you want to give us a small Bitcoin tip just for that episode that you really enjoyed or really appreciated, you can send it 
and we'll know that it goes to episode number 69. And so it's a way for us to know which specific episodes people are donating for. And so huge thanks to Danny for sending the Bitcoin along and for helping to pioneer this new method of value exchange on the web. And Danny mentioned a Demirage-based online cryptocurrency named Freecoin. And you can find out more about Freecoin at F-R-E-I-C-O dot N, and I'll leave the link in the show notes. But this uses the idea of a demurrage fee, where basically the longer you hold on to the free coin, the less value it has. And so what it does is it helps to reduce that whole dynamic where people want to put money and sit on it. And instead of sending it out into the world, which is creating this kind of ice world that Nicole Foss was talking about where everything freezes over. So um, there's a lot on Demirage-based currencies in Charles Eisenstein's writings. You can read more about it online, or you can also go to the Freecoin site and find out more of why you would want a Demirage currency. And so talking about Bitcoins, it brings up uh, our segment that we just had with John Michael Greer, where he was talking about the government and big corporations that own and built the internet. So the idea behind cryptocurrencies is it's trying to develop a system that avoids some of that large centralized control over the internet. But we actually got a voicemail that talks about some of those same dynamics. Hi, my name is Laura calling from Toronto. Um, I just listened to your latest episodes on carbon democracy. Great episode, by the way. And you briefly mentioned um, the role the Internet plays, which is a topic I've been really interested in how it may or may not foment democracy in our society. I currently think that the current state of the Internet doesn't do that as it's a client to server-based thing where corporations own the servers and the lines and everything and control a lot of stuff. And we basically just have to try and implement policies and laws to protect ourselves. So a form that I'm really interested in is actually changing the technology. I don't know if you've heard of the MeshNet, which was formerly known as the DarkNet, which would just in a nutshell change the technological, the actual structure of the internet so that people really own their own servers. So it wouldn't even hardly be possible for corporations or larger entities, um, businesses, or governments, or anyone to control peer-to-peer communication. Thank you very much, Laura, for that fantastic voicemail. I think the question of the mesh net is really interesting because as we just heard in our segment with John Michael Greer, there's this challenge to thinking about the internet where Often we forget that it relies on these massive server farms, these big systems that require non-renewable resources and energy that is definitely not coming from a democratized source. So even in the long term where it could be possible to do some kind of like 3D printing peer-to-peer production for a server farm and you know use solar panels to power certain parts of the internet the real challenge to the internet's survival long term is figuring out how to democratize all of those pieces of its infrastructure's production and sometimes i think because the internet's definitely not going away anytime soon these kinds of initiatives like the meshnet are really important and actually we're going to be doing some shows on peer-to-peer production in the coming year in 2014 and 
over the 21st century, I think it's wise to look at what John Michael Greer's talking about and not necessarily count on the internet survival. I was just thinking the other day, you know, what will be the pyramids of our generation? And it may possibly be those massive server farms and buildings where we thought they would stand and, and last forever. And they may physically stand the test of time, but their actual internet connections may not. The complex set of energy and material relationships that enable the this internet infrastructure don't stand a very good chance of lasting through the entire 21st century for a number of reasons like we've covered on the show. However, I do think that mesh net technologies are extremely important because of, as you mentioned, Laura, this client-server relationship that controls the flow of information on the internet. And as the internet is viewed as increasingly subversive and perhaps organizing subversive activities in society, I think increasingly parts of it will be shut down and made inaccessible. I think that when the U.S. government and the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve really understand and the subversive nature of Bitcoin, they're probably going to become much more aggressive towards it and trying to shut it down. That doesn't mean the end of Bitcoin. That just means it may be the end of Bitcoin for the United States. Uh, But as prohibition shut down alcohol in the U.S., we know what happened to it. It drives a big underground economy, and that could be what happens. But projects like MeshNet Technologies will essentially enable these communications to still exist and happen without having to flow through these centralized servers. So I think it may be a really powerful tool for, you know, neighborhood file sharing or neighborhood democratization of Internet access and those sorts of things. So definitely looking over like the next 10 to 20 years years, these technologies are going to be extremely important. But I think John Michael Greer is taking a a long 21st century kind of viewpoint. And in in that kind of uh, standpoint, I definitely agree that because of all the systems involved in the internet, there's going to be a lot of challenges, whether it's centralized or democratized in keeping it going. But that's not to say that, you know, maybe in 80 years, we'll still have an internet, it'll just be much more regional, uh, run by small scale solar farms or something. It'll be interesting to see how that process evolves. And it's also about giving that information that using those huge companies like the Googles, like the Facebooks, like the Microsofts, these companies that hold all this incredible amount of information and use it as a kind of currency. They they mine your information. They use it to their advantage. And anytime you're giving away information and, and you're not getting paid for it, Somebody else is making money on it. And you have to you have to remember that every time you sign to Facebook, every time you post something, every time we are the extra environmentalist post something on Facebook, we are helping the, that company to make some money to, to support that large corporation's goal at making money for their shareholders. So that's something that you have to keep in mind and they can shut that off at any time. And when there's no Facebook, then you can't contact your friends in that way and you can't have local events and you can't do these other things. So you have to remember these things. Remember that these are companies and their goal is to make money. And it's not, it's not, it's like, like a, it's not a social good. It's a money making enterprise. For me, the value of the internet is in a distribution uh, model where I can download podcasts from all around the world. I can download media and videos and books and all kinds of things from all around the world and then take those and deal with them offline. 
it's not the on the online world itself that necessarily that helps me out as much as the stuff that I can pull off of it and then deal with later. All of our episodes are freely available on our website, extraenvironmentalist.com, where you can stream them live, find them on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and on SoundCloud as well. Thanks to so many of the listeners that we hear from. I wanted to say thanks to Kitty in Washington for getting in touch as soon as she found out that Nicole Foss was headed to the Pacific Northwest to say that uh, she loved listening to our show and wanted us to interview her. So uh, we really appreciate hearing from people all across the world who are finding out about you know interesting people and ideas and initiatives that they want to hear on the show. And frankly, we're, we're quite overwhelmed. Like uh, We have more than a dozen interviews that we've already recorded and are just sitting and waiting to be released because we frankly didn't expect this many people to you know agree to talk to us at, at, over the last year. And so we're going to hold off on recording new interviews for a bit just so we can get these out. So thanks again for listening to The Ex-Environmentalist. Brave that cold weather, get out there and read a book. in time. Everything is going to get worse in time. Because as you know, it does. We all fall apart in the end. Everything falls apart. Institutions, buildings, nations, it all crumbles. And people say, well, that's an awfully pessimistic philosophy. Well, is it? I would rather say that the people who have hope in the future are the miserable people. Because they're like donkeys chasing carrots that are dangled before their noses from sticks attached to their collars. And they pursue and they pursue in vain always hoping that tomorrow will be the great thing, and therefore incapable of enjoying themselves today. People who live for the future never get there, because when their plans mature, they are not there to enjoy them. So that when they retire at 65, you know, they have false teeth and wrinkles and prostate trouble and all that sort of thing. Uh, where were you going? What did you think it was all about? Furthermore, the fact that life is transient is part of its liveliness. The poets, in speaking of the transience of the world, always utter their best poetry. Our revels now are ended, and these our actors, as I foretold you, are all spirits, and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great earth itself, I, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. And said so well, it doesn't seem so bad after all, does it? <laughs> the whole idea, you see, is that everything's falling apart. 
So don't try and stop it. When you're falling off a precipice, it doesn't do you any good to hang on to hang on to a rock that's falling with you. See? Well, everything is doing that. And so, again, this is another case of our completely wasting our energy in trying to prevent the world from falling apart. Don't do it. And then you'll be able to do something interesting with the free energy. In the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with author Brian Check about his new book, Supply Shock and the Corruption of Economics. People like John D. Rockefeller, for example, established the University of Chicago, one of the biggest land barons of all time, and establishing a university with an econ department that became by far the biggest and most powerful in the world. And, uh, you know, hiring a, a department that was from the get-go very much aligned against this proposal to tax land. And it's kind of a long story, but it's... So these land barons essentially bankrolled economic departments and that ignored the land and basically promoted these ideas that they felt to be strong. And is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Welcome to Assured Destruction Mutual, where we'll ensure your retirement savings are permanently retired. Thanks to our new and improved phone system, we're here to serve your needs to our fullest extent possible. Listen carefully as our options have changed. Use the numbers on your touchtone telephone to please select the retirement plan that you have chosen. Press 1 for debt serfdom. Press 2 for tenant farming. Press 3 for wage slavery. Press 4 for cube farming. Friggin'. Stupid. You've selected debt serfdom. Please listen closely as instability in the monetary system causes our numbers to change frequently. Press 13562372896 for failed stock market assets. Press 4563279722543 for where is your money actually going. Press 5 if you'd like to contribute more money to the golden parachute of our CEO. No, that's an incorrect key. You will now be directed to contributing more money to the golden parachute of the CEO. Your line will be automatically charged. Thank you for calling. You've seen the politicians and the CEOs on TV. Inflation is quite low and productivity growth has been remarkably strong. The fundamentals are in place for maximum sustainable growth. Maximum sustainable growth. Maximum sustainable growth. You've asked yourself, how can they be so oblivious to reality? Their secret, it's their filter bubble. Who would ever want to look a powerful CEO or a president in the eye and tell them that they're crazy or that something they ask for just can't be done? It's called the filter bubble. 
And now you too can have the same high-quality information, peace, and serenity that the executives do. Thanks to Ronco's do-it-yourself filter bubble wrap. Never have to worry about cognitive dissonance or information that just plain makes you unhappy ever again. And I am concerned because I work three jobs. You work three jobs? Three jobs, yes. Uniquely American, isn't it? I mean, that is fantastic that you're yes. doing that. You get any sleep? Not much. But wait, there's more. Act now and you get our free remote application system. Know anybody who looks like they could use some peace of mind? Give the gift of information serenity to anybody at a distance of up to 30 feet without actually having to touch them in person. An essential item to pack on your vacation to Turkey, Egypt, Brazil, or the Global South. Endorsed by professionals and executives the world over. Here's Syrian President Bashar Assad. They took the chemical weapons out of my country, but fortunately they left me the civilized alternative, filter bubble wrap. No more messy rebellion. Stop the detention! End religious persecution! End religious persecution! Jailbreak the iPhone! Jailbreak the iPhone! Jailbreak the iPhone! We need, we need the, the Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad box set on, set on Blu-ray! As an officially licensed product of the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Summer Olympics, you'll soon see our product deployed in a Brazilian new colors and styles. Collect them all! That's Ronco Filter Bubble Wrap! The perfect Christmas gift for the executive who has everything. Look for us on NASDAQ. Symbol F-U-B-A-R. Warning, danger of suffocation. Not for use by children under two years old. Do not drive or operate heavy machinery while encased in filter bubble wrap. In case of accidental ingestion, skin rash, or eyeball disembodiment, please see your doctor immediately.